This episode, once again, of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by Bella Catering. If you want to find them, bellacatering.com.au. They are simply the best caterers in Sydney. They've pivoted to home delivery because of COVID. And if you don't want to cook for the fluctuating number of visitors you're now allowed to have in your home, bellacatering.com.au is the best place to go. They're great people. Glenn and Maria and their entire team are wonderful. We love them and we are so fortunate for their support during this really incredibly tough time. Um, if you guys want to look them up again, it's bellacatering.com.au. Guys, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of All the President's Minutes in another week. Um, we are steamrolling towards the end. I just want to say a huge thank you to our fans who are reaching out, um, uh, particularly uh, Mr. Greg Christie, Greggles, as I love to call him, who's pointed out that the American election is, in fact, on the first Tuesday in November, the 3rd of the 11th, not the 21st. So this show will be going beyond the election. Holy dooly. But now, let's go to the garage with Garth. Why was I, the chief of special ops, selected to travel to the South Pole at that time to do a job that any number of others could have done? And I wondered if it could have been because one of my routine duties, if I had been in Washington, would have been to arrange for additional security in Texas. So I decided to check it out. And sure enough, I found out that someone had told the 112th Military Intelligence Group at 4th Army Headquarters at Fort Sam Houston to stand down that day over the protests of the unit commander. Colonel Wright. I believe it's a mistake. This is significant because it is standard operating procedure, especially in a known hostile city like Dallas, to supplement the Secret Service. I mean, even if we had not allowed the bubble top to be removed from the limousine, we would have placed at least 100 to 200 agents on the sidewalk without question. I mean, only a month before Dallas. UN Ambassador Adlai Stevenson was spit on and hit. There had already been several attempts on De Gaulle's life in France. We would have arrived days ahead of time, studied the route, checked all the buildings, never would have allowed all those wide open empty windows overlooking Dealey, never. We'd have had our own snipers covering the area. The minute a window went up, they'd have been on the radio. We'd have been watching the crowd, packages rolled up, newspapers, coat over and up. Never would have let a man open an umbrella along the way. Never would have allowed that limousine to slow down to 10 miles an hour, much less take that unusual curve at Houston and Elm. You would have felt an army presence in the streets that day. None of this happened. It was a violation of the most basic protection codes we have, and it is the best indication of a massive plot in Dallas. Now, who could have best done this? Black Ops, Mr. Garrison. People in my business, people like my superior officer, could have called Colonel Reich and said, look, we have another unit coming from so-and-so providing security. You'll stand down. I mean, that day, in fact, there were some individual Army intelligence people in Dallas. I'm still trying to figure out who and why. But they weren't protecting client, and, of course, Oswald. Army Intel had a Harvey Lee Oswald on file. All those files have been destroyed. Many strange things were happening, and your Lee Harvey Oswald had nothing to do with them. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. 107 episodes in the series, and this man, unfortunately, due to a non-COVID-related cold, could not make it for the 100th episode as had been predestined and preordained as part of the series. But he's back to join me in an equally important deep throat scene. He's one of my dearest friends. He's an internet movie news trailblazer. He continues to be a Ben Bradley-esque 
Uh, I, I haven't seen him wear as much velour um, or velvet as he probably should, but he certainly oh, knows. I how- wear, I wear it. <laughs> <laughs> but he certainly, but he certainly knows how to wield the living shit out of a red pen. If you are online, you have read his incredible website, Dark Horizons, in the last twenty-two years. He's my dear friend who always pats me on the back and pushes me towards these insane projects. He is Mr. Garth Franklin. Garth. Welcome back, my brother. It's good to be back, and it's good to know that I'm the one that's going to be left with the legal threat of <laughs> pushing you just too hard. No, no, the the the, the you for, for both editorial pushes and uh, and for and for little nudges into these insane projects, uh, you're both equally great. It's good to see you. Um, I'm I'm going to have to get your permission at some point to get a a great screenshot of this uh, because Garth has uh, in in the in the in the truest style has actually on this zoom chat as we're communicating has like colored his screen with the background of the underground car park for the scene that we're in, including the lights in his room have also, uh, uh are now like got this greenish tinge so that he's perfectly, uh, color oh, appropriate. It's, yeah, it's, we're doing a very moody, moody sort of zoom meeting. There's all sorts of tricks and things going on. And because of the way this technology works, it can do all sorts of crazy stuff. So like I do this trick, right. It's sort of vanish. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so he's, he's staying there. I mean, look, if, if, you know, Hal Holbrook's deep throat had this technology, he would never have had to walk into an underground car park, but here we are together. Um, look, man, thank hey, you. So- I'm a gay man who grew up in the 1990s. I know my way about dark car parks. <laughs> <laughs> and there we go. I, I knew it wouldn't take long and you have not disappointed. Um, one thing that was really awesome about us kicking off this particular discussion, we're 107 minutes into this movie. We're definitely on the downhill slope, about 30 minutes to go, circa 30 minutes to go in the whole movie. Um, mm-hmm. It's an iconic scene, but it's, I, I guess, it's kind of undervalued just how iconic these mysterious characters who come and do these huge expository dumps are on both on lots of pop culture or just like conspiracy genres or paranoia thrillers, like just going forward. And I think that once you kind of create this figure, or I guess it's, you know, it's like cauterized in everyone's brain with deep throat as a character, you know, it, it, it paves the way for characters, as you mentioned earlier, CSM, as we call him, as his mates call him, cigarette smoking man from the X-Files, it paves the way for X. Well, Cigarette Smoking Man was like the sort of classic villain. It was more Jerry Harden. He was he was a character called Deep Throat in the first season of the X Files, and he was always the the guy who was exactly copying this kind of thing. And and yeah, an ex from Donald Sutherland's role in JFK, which actually has a lot more parallels to this directly in terms of how it lays out the information. I mean, that with that film, for example, you have that one scene which is just it's the only scene Sutherland's in the film, but it's like a 10, 15 minute of pure exposition, nothing else, just explanation after explanation after thing very very dry dialogue you would think but it's one of the most riveting scenes in the not just the film in any film it is like a great sequence you can just watch over and over again because it just works so well uh, uh, oliver he, oliver stone's got a doco series i'm not sure if, if a lot of the folks listening um uh, can get their hands on it but it's called um it's like the untold history of the United States and oh yeah the one about all the different improvement and everything like, yeah, yeah yeah he's got a great doco and that X scene in JFK where Donald Sutherland plays X and he's talking to Kevin Costner's Jim Garrison and he's there outlining everything that's happening. It is so powerful because Oliver Stone's 
intuitive and really electrifying editing style. Basically takes what is a very matter of fact and seductively delivered piece of dialogue from Sutherland because he's just got that wonderful voice that seems always like he's a step ahead of everyone when he's talking. It's one of his great qualities. Um, That sort of, you know, that sort of smiling, um, knowing of everything that's going on. And it just, it is laying things out and it is plying you with information, visual information, audio information, his voice. And it's just constantly reinforcing, you know, in, in, in the car parks and all the president's men, you don't have that. You've got these, you know, these whispers and, you know, all the the environment and the atmosphere is there and, and Woodward whispering, and we'll get into it when we actually break down the scene. But I love what you said. It, It is literally a perfect scene that, I think it's the breaking point when you start watching JFK. If you make the X scene, you can't not finish the movie. But if you stop before <laughs> the X scene, you can. Like you can actually pause and go, all right, I'll pick this up tomorrow or I'll pick it up in a week yeah, or so. Exactly. But, but once yeah. you get that X scene, it's so intoxicating. You're like, fuck yeah, dial me in. I am <laughs> like, I'm, I'm queuing on. I'm, I'm on a bad Reddit thread. Like I'm all in, like on this conspiracy. Tower this, Seven. This is, when, this is when, you know, conspiracy <laughs> theories were kind of fun and it, weren't, it wasn't the habit or the thing of the, of the nuts. Yes, <laughs> yes. You actually just enjoy going down the rabbit hole. Yes. Yeah, but I know I love what you said there. There's there's um there's definitely that allure that that happens in that scene and these scenes and and you know uh the, the deep throat scene, um I think you said Jerry Harden was the guy from who plays the actual deep throat, but I've always I've always had that, you know, the cigarette smoking man is a villain, but like the iconography especially for cigarette smoking man for so long is like such a Holbrook thing. Obviously he takes, Oh yeah. He's a huge, he's a huge life in the rest of this show. And there's even a great episode of the Simpsons in who shot Mr. Burns where Smithers plays this uh, deep throat character, which has been referenced a few episodes ago. Um, um, And, uh, but Homer turns on the lights of the car in the car park and lights him up and then they have to drive him home. Um, But it's, you know, it's, it's, I think this this scene, this movie has its fingerprints in a whole bunch of media after after this movie. Well, we'll get to the, the you know the cigarette smoking with this particular minute. There's a, I want to talk about one of the big drags that Holbrook does. <laughs> <in this scene. laughs> All right. Well, 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 let's 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 drag ourselves straight into that scene um, now, guys. If you're listening and you want to dial it up um, on whether it's your streaming service or your Blu-ray, your DVD, if you're a physical media nut like me, um, it is one hour and 46 minutes on the dial. Garth and I are going to watch the minute right now together. You guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and talk about The letter, the, the, the letter that destroyed the Muskie candidates, the Knuckle. Did that come from inside the way? You're missing the overall. But what overall? They were frightened of Muskie and look who got destroyed. They wanted to run against McGovern. Look who they're running against. They bugged. They followed people. False press leaks, fake letters. They canceled Democratic campaign rallies. They investigated Democratic private lives. They planted spies, stole documents, and on and on. Now, don't tell me you think this is all the work of little Don Secretti. The FBI and Justice know this. God, it's a I mean drag. You, it's a mean I'd drag. That, but I can tell you never, 
never in a, another movie I can think of uh, has aquamarine been so threatening in color. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> it's not since Blue Crush that aquamarine <laughs> looks so threatening. Oh, there's a, there's a callback, yeah. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's, it's a wonderful scene. And what, what I think that aquamarine is doing is it's the atmosphere of the whole scene um, oh, it's, like, it's beautiful. I mean, there are, there are other car park scenes with this one, and they do the different kind of lightings in this one, but it's the lighting of this particular one. I really, especially on, on Holbrook, the way he's yeah. lit up in this scene. And then you, you see that brief bit of the orange when he takes the cigarette pole. And it's, oh, it's just ugh, exquisite in terms of the shadows and everything. <laughs> it's, it's, it's finally, you know, these guys start to piece it together with Segretti. Oh, you mean, um, in the, look, this is the crux of the movie in some this whole scene. Absolutely. I was just going to say. Yeah. yeah. I mean, up until this point, it's like they're following, it's almost like, you know, they're following a smaller thing and then they find Sigretti, which is kind of the kick into this bit. But this is the turning point. Same thing with the X-Zone and JFK we were talking about. This is the turning point where investigation into one person linked to it, who's actually very much a middleman, a really tiny sort of cog in a much bigger machine. And this is the first time where he gets an idea of how big this machine all is. It goes way beyond some small little, you know, dirty tricks kind of thing and rat fucking and all that sort of stuff. It goes into serious criminal federal crimes here, all going on multiple cases involving dozens and dozens of people. And you know, you, you really don't think the government's disorganized until suddenly you realize maybe there are things. That are kind of <laughs> <laughs> and and but I, I love I love also. And it happens with the X scene and it happens with the transition for Garrison and his investigators, because it's like once there's kind of this speculative, I love, I love a movie that has the patience and the dedication to have a sort of speculative moment where they're like, Oh, look at all this stuff. Could it mean? And then when they're laying through Segretti's uh, air tickets and hotel room bookings on the floor of Bernstein's apartment. And it's just, it's only a few moments just really before this minute. And it's that sequence is like, what if this was something bigger, a tactical plan to disrupt the democratic process and the democratic nominee from four years ago? Like it, it's Watergate is not one isolated incident. And right now here, the Woodward still having that suspicion, you know, we talked about the X-Files still having that, you know, being very suspicious and speculating very much on whether that could actually be the truth. I love the frustration here in in deep throat which is they bugged they disrupted it's not just one guy like if you think one guy could do this and and that's what's so wonderful is like that speculative little scene like you know in their wildest dreams it could be one or a small tactical group uh, you know conducting this you know this disruption but he's like if you think that this could go all on while all these people are watching you are clueless and thing yeah and the whiteness you talk about aquamarine the whiteness of Redford's eyes have never been so like, they haven't drawn you to them in in any way in this film up until this point. And I think I, I relish the, the performance decisions and there's something about the composition. It's just like, as, as uh, deep throat is laying it out here, the whites of Woodward's eyes, what Redford's eyes are widening and widening and widening. It's like, he's like, Oh shit. Like everything is dawning on him. And then everything that happens from this moment on, you know, nothing is ever going to be the same again. Well, no, yeah, this is the big revelation moment. This is the point where they realize, you know, the perception of how big this goes 
it's basically bursts open and he has no choice but to sort of realize oh shit i'm not only this is not bigger than i expected but there are a lot more consequences to come with this thing there are a lot more he's in serious trouble yes this is the you know the beautiful minute after this one of the course the the panic scene with the running and so on, which is just, you know, that's a whole, there's a whole discussion that we have for that one. <laughs> yes. Person <laughs> um, afterwards, but yeah, but also Holbrook in this one is, this is a great scene because for him, because up until this point, all his previous scenes, he's always, he's kept it very, very vague. Yes. And he's been kind of, you know, just, you know, follow the money and just do all these little things. And he's kept it very generalized. And then this time he's now getting to, Woodward's getting to names like Holderman, which are hitting and scaring him. He's like, he's you'll get the first time nervous <laughs> in the previous minute where he says, you'll get nothing from me and hold him. And it's like, Oh, yeah. we must've just struck yeah, a nerve. nerve. <laughs> we just struck a nerve there. Um, but, no, and, but, he's, but he also, you can also see the frustration within his voice where he is deeper. He knows everything that's going on. And he can't, a lot of it, he can't say and he, he yes. won't say. And he realizes that what was getting closer, but it's like, he, you know, it's that push and pull and there are things that he won't let up and he just really can't let go of yet. And he will let go of in the latest next day. But it's, yeah, it's, yeah. You know, I, I heard, I heard a couple of people describing it in politics and I suppose definitely someone who's working in a government organization, you know, it, it's not about compromises. It's just, everything is about trade-offs. Like if you do something, you're trading off something else. If you do something, you're trading off something else, et cetera, you know, just in, in, in the broadest possible sense. But I think for him, there are massive trade-offs to this information because right, the more vague, the more vague that he's been able to be, the more laser, um, the more he's avoided the laser focus of if you're really specific and you give these guys every part of the story, the person who knows all of those details can only be very few people. You know what I mean? People, like, yeah. you know, yeah. like when we talk about <laughs> the, the, cl- the, the shit can only land on so many doorsteps. <laughs> That's, that is exactly what I was about to say is like, we talk about the classic Reddit rabbit holes and, you know, people speculating on who deep throat was for many years before we knew that we knew it specifically to be Mark felt um, the man that he's portraying a guy who looks a shit ton like Hal Holbrook. Um, the, the, you know, the, which, which, you know, is funny because Bob Woodward insisted that Hal Holbrook play him, which is even funnier than anything but it's um <laughs> it's what's great about it is that in in all in his way to be vague he's he's making sure that he can still give them the information they can and gently point them but like right now you get you know in that final scene where he does finally relent obviously we're going to get to it and we won't go into too much detail now because the process of this show we're not going to sort of deny that great conversation that's coming but I would just say, I think he gets pushed to a new layer himself too. Exactly. As you said, because right now he's literally, he's showing you where his boundaries are, which also give you a little bit of a hint of who this guy could be at the same time. He's like showing you that he's got a whole well of information and he wants to spill it. Like he just needs them to do what he thinks they need to do to get the job done. And um, yeah. But it also also showcases the, the threat where yes. if this is a guy who is connected to this thing and he's that scared, and this is a guy who's obviously not been phased by covert operations, by murders, by other things. Uh, <laughs> what, what's poor little Woodward? <laughs> You're in trouble, son. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This, like, yeah. This is serious shit. This is serious shit. They're and, and, w- and it gets more serious when, and as you said, 
nothing like a great drag on a cigarette. And as a former yeah. and sometimes drinking uh, smoker, um, when he just takes that toke, he's like, do the FBI and justice know this? And he just goes, mm. <laughs> it's like, like it could not be intimating that that is the case anymore. Like it's like a, it's like a punctuation. Oh, yeah, yeah. It might be an underline. Like it's literally like, literally illuminated in fire um that that is the case but it's like we cannot wait they're not saying anything and that should that should tell you something else which is if they can't oh, say anything then there's a yeah, there's something else going on but it's also one of the most biggest implication in terms of the dialogue in the film it's like the two mass two two of the biggest government agencies for law enforcement have looked have given a blind eye to essentially these things very deliberately by people involved and that takes to that's what takes it to the big scale but you also in holbrook's the whole thing with holbrook there is that he has that stare i mean i grew up you were you were a child from sort of my era so i grew up in the sort of 80s 90s that were the movies that we introduced and holbrook in that sort of time he was always playing villains he was always yeah. like he was the, the the nutty civil war general and flesh <laughs> ribs he was the, the the crazy the crazy priest in the fog he was the different thing like that um but he's also, then you saw him as like presidents of Mark Twain, all that sort of stuff. So he's very good at playing both good and bad and kind of figures in to authority. And a lot of that's to do with staring. He's not, a, you know, he's not a big or menacing guy. He can just stare you right in the fucking soul and just like stare you down. There's, there was an amazing, and I know that you probably saw it online too. There was this amazing uh, interview that Oliver Reed was doing. And it was just like a fun variety show interview that he was doing. And someone unearthed it and was tweeting about it the other day and had a lot of fun conversations around it. And he was just talking about how uh, his job as an actor is, is stillness, Mm. especially with his eyes. He's like, you know, if I want to show that I have, if I have metal and I don't want to be intimidated, then I'm not going to blink and I have to be able to stare at you and I have to be able to not blink and there has to be nothing. And so there's this great thing where he's sort of coaching an interviewer in a fun, you know, silly um, interview about his acting and what he can't hold, what, what Oliver Reed cannot do is not be a, not literally charm the pants off of anyone he's talking to because he's literally (laughs) so fucking charming and talented. So you're like, you can't take your eyes off him. But, Mm. but in that, in those brief moments of staring, you know, he, he, he talking about his stillness and his metal, I look at this scene and it's exactly, as you said, it's the power of that stare and the lack of blinking and the intent that he's, he's not a guy who wilts in, in the face of this incredible pressure but he also knows that he, like, like I think we just briefly touched on it before, but it's like just how much danger Woodward is in without any clue that he's in that uh, yeah. much danger. <laughs> and, and so it's kind of scary and it's wonderful and it's just all part of, again, the overwhelming magic of how this movie has been put together. But it's, and, and the whole fact that, you know, for, a, for the longest time, this figure and this character was thought to be, and, and a lot of people sort of uh, painted it as a whimsical character, an invention, an invention for narrative. Secretly meeting some, well, the, thing, the idea of a secretly meeting some dude in a garage, just so, you know, it's going to give you all, 
bunch of the secrets of the whole thing just seems kind of ludicrous. You're going into a meter garage, somebody at nine in the dark garage, either giving you like a knife in the gut or a, or a dick up the ass. It's not, <laughs> not much of anything else for other reason. <laughs> yeah. It, it, there, there, there's a uh, uh, carnal, uh, reasons there's uh, murderous reasons very rare is a, a source of information um uh except now in virtual but, but it, the, the virtual it, car park of the internet a, which is reddit but it's interesting to make a, a point on that front is you know this is going to be a tag you probably won't hear from a lot of people but as a as a gay guy growing up into the 90s uh, 1890s when a lot of the time uh, we are in a culture where you know guys like me were thrown off cliffs at points so it was kind of scary going out and doing some stuff so that you were times where you would be like Redford in this thing, where you go to a strange place, hook up with the guy, something like that. But then you realize, fuck, I'm in a dark, empty building. I don't know who this person is. They're rucked off. You know, I'm, I could be killed by one. <laughs> this is kind of scary. So <laughs> you realize the actual fear. Um, and then Woodward in this scene is like, this is, because that's the funny, he's almost been uh, humoring Deep Throat up to this point with all his, know change cabs and doing that stuff he seems you can tell from him he's just thinking it's kind of a predicted ridiculousness and then this is the first scene where he realized in the car of course there's a scene where you hear the car starting up and screeching away it's like oh shit this is actually real this yeah is, you know, and and you know there's a minute you know you guys you guys on and i can't wait to share it with you you guys are going to hear like a minute uh, you know, unlike this scene that Garth and I've just been talking about, which is heavy with dialogue, you're going to have a minute that where you largely just hear the scrunching of, you know, the dirt underfoot. And then you're going to hear, you know, another minute where Redford steams out of there and starts running and turns around because he's the, the impressions of this ominous threat that is about to envelop him are all coming down to just strangle him where he stands. Like the, the threat is going to feel like it's going to materialize. It's going to like, we've just had three minutes of deep throat giving the conversation that, yeah, you have every right to be fucking paranoid (laughs) 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 because they are watching you and they will kill you. (laughs) And, and so it's, it's those things where it's like, they bugged the Democrats. If you think they're scared of bugging you, <laughs> then you're an idiot. Because these not guys bugging the Democrats. Isn't it's like not just some crappy sort of sending out letters and things like this. this is threatening people. This is you know lining up the candidate that they want to go against. This is you know putting covert surveillance on people and all that kind of stuff. It, it's this goes a lot beyond some crappy you know a bunch of college drunken idiots in a room together coming into some crazy mailing campaign. <laughs> this is serious dudes with serious power. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that, you know, it's it's like a chessboard, right? Like at the moment, mm. they're trying to write a story about a pawn. And you're like, uh yeah. no, there's a few well, other they got, things- they got they got they got a they got a rook with oh, they, um Segretti. Oh, a rook, but it's like you you're forgetting about the queen and you're also forgetting about these gnarly, the uh, these gnarly bishops with a bunch of different bishops you're gonna get a knights and yeah <laughs> yeah i feel like there's a whole nother layer of bishops all these like diagonal weird bastards that are coming at you from different angles and and all those sorts of things in this um but yeah segretti is just literally the tip of an iceberg mm. 
Yeah. And now, this is, you know, you see this narrative in a lot of films. There's a few films that had before this and a few others where you start with something small. You're, you're looking into something small. But the early James Bond films did the same thing where he was inve- always went to investigate some little thing. Maybe some person's secretary got killed or some device got stolen, whatever. It ends up being some scheme to destroy the world and blow up the planet. Uh, <laughs> but a lot bless, of good movies. Bless used, those movies. Used, Bless that movie. A lot of use this movie to use that formula. You're getting in an entry level at some very small thing, which ties into a much larger thing. And the whole crux of the movie is where it reveals it. And what this film does quite differently to a lot of them is that it saves that for the last half hour. Now, the X scene in JFK is about an hour in of a three-hour film. So you, it's really the sort of end of the first act, kick off the second act kind of thing. Um, and so this, and a lot of the other ones, you know, it's, it's revealed sort of more midpoint. It's a big sort of change midway and thing. So to have it this late, you realise, oh, how the hell are we going to tie this up in the next 20 minutes, half an hour? And then, of course, as the film goes on, you realise this is really just the start of the story. And there's a lot of stuff. <laughs> this will go yeah, on for a long time. I think I, I can't remember for the life of me who mentioned it in the show so far, but, you know, so, some things are, sometimes history is bigger than a movie. And allowing yeah. the bookends, <laughs> allowing history to bookend it. How to book dare it. you? <laughs> I know. Um, uh, uh, um, uh, allowing history to be the bookends of a film, you know, it gives you the comfort that people can know. Um, I guess where it's going. It's the same thing that could hamstrung, uh, could hamstrung a production as uh, hamstring a production rather, where it's like you get to the point where it's so intimidating to know what to actually show in the movie like what's yeah. where, where does the movie exist in the in the continuum of this what do we tell what do we not tell because you know what where are we trying to focus and for this it's all about perspective it's the perspective of these two guys as much as possible um on their experience exclusively up to a point but i think you know if you look at, I don't know whether whether it's you know you hear about all these weird things with screenwriters in a contemporary society about like all this weird movie math that happens around like at this point if you really want to do this you know like one third into the movie you're going to reveal this and then you're going to do it you know you're going to exponentially make that faster for the next reveal and all these weird things and this movie doesn't follow any discernible pattern about when things are revealed. But funnily enough, of course, this is the movie movie written by William Goldman, who is the one that came up with the whole thing, with the yes. creative, you know, in screenwriting. He's the one that came up with the formula of, you know, the, the different acts that have kind of, that almost everybody has followed. And it wasn't really until, I guess, another generation later when you had people like uh, Tarantino and Paul Thomas Anderson came on and said, oh, fuck, the three-act rule was, you know, we'll put in <laughs> reversals wherever the fuck you want. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Speaking, uh, of, <laughs> speaking of an, uh, you know, an, an Anderson movie with Jason Robards, in fact, Magnolia kind of, it breaks, it breaks every rule. It breaks every rule. And that's only in the first six minutes. It breaks almost every rule. Um, but, but, but I think that, yeah, when, I, when you look at this, it's like, you know, obviously the break in and then the discovery and, you know, just knowing because of this project, it's like 76 minutes in is the bookkeeper scene. You know, and, and which which opens you up to everything yeah, that like happened. Was a was yeah. a, a real thing. So between between that scene and you know to to this scene now at 107 minutes, you've got, you've got another 30 minutes, and there have been these steady incremental you know moments in the early hundreds. You get Segretti and the concept of rat fucking, and now 107 with Deep Throat, and it's like 
that would make no sense. Why would you put two of the most massive reveals like here? Like we've waited an hour, almost an hour and a half just to get to the potential of revelation. And then there's something else. And now the revelations are heavy and fast and thick in the, at the end of this movie. And, and it, it, it doesn't seem to make sense, but you know, I, I think for, for all of the, the game that Goldman talks from his knowledge of the business, um, this script in every way shouldn't work. Um, and doesn't follow any of the rules that he may prescribe. It just does <laughs> what it needs to do and seems to miraculously work on almost every function when you, you know, regardless of the fact that we're now an hour and 47 minutes into this movie, almost two hours in and there's not that long to go and we've still got the biggest revelations yet to come. Well, I think you think part of it is probably because so many investigative movies are about cops. Cops, yes. are, cops are the ones who have the right to demand answers. Where they don't, journalists have there's no right to demand answers. They have to sort of f- kind of finagle them out of people. And uh, as I think you said, one of your previous episodes where they, you know, journalists are somewhat con men who kind of, you know, yes. <laughs> have to chant the pants off and, you know, kind of get into the things. And it's kind of partly true because you have to convince people to trust you and they kind of have to do it for no real reason. They, and when you can't force them to, you have to let it out. And so the beauty of this movie with that kind of thing is, is it takes the time to build up. So even today, you really couldn't do films like this where you spend almost two thirds of the movie doing the build up, as opposed to you know now it's like if you don't get there by the, by the half hour, forty minute mark, it's like yeah, we got to start yeah, now. And but it, it it actually feels believable for journalism because that's how it takes. It's a long, slow road, um, and it just takes a long time to get there. Yeah, and I think you know one of the closest analogs to this movie in my mind is another project that I've been really drawn to, which is Zodiac, which in the first half an hour in the, on the inverse says all of the action and all of the facts and all of the, the, the kills in this serial killer movie and all of the huge threats all literally happened in the first 30 minutes. And then for the next yeah. for the next just over two hours is this, increasing and steady and insanely torturous investigation coming from it from three angles, whether it's Tosky, um, you know, um, whether it's, oh, sorry, beginning with Avery and then into the Tosky, leaning heavily into the Tosky stuff and then all the way into Graysmith, which obviously carries out to the end of the movie. Well, that's why, I mean, uh, there was a TV series called Columbo, which is the Peter Fox. That was famous exactly for that, that reason. It was, it was all the other shows were procedurals about who done it, whereas this was the show that showed you, the murder exactly how it happened and got it all done in the first five minutes. And the rest of the hour is about him is all about his investigation and how he came up to the conclusion of it. And so these, so Zodiac is in kind of ways kind of a reverse all the president's men. Yes, <laughs> it is. Which is this sort of thing. Investigation up to this stuff. But yeah, I, it's a, it's an interesting approach for newspaper films because so many of the other ones, because there are so few in this field, and when you're doing these serious investigative ones, um, a lot of it, there's this whole thing about, you know, how much do you invent for the movie just to make it more interesting as the thing. Yes. And of course, there's a couple of scenes in here where they, you know, they embellish a few things or they have to do that sort of stuff just for narrative reasons. But otherwise it stays if, pretty If anyone could fact, play, if, if anyone is being played by Robert Redford, the movie has embellishment. Okay. It's just like, this is where I just want to, I want to start and end with, 
if you could, if you've seen Bob Wood in real life and you look at Robert Redford, that's called embellishment. Um, it's like, it's like it's, I would, I would be fucking stoked to have young seventies Robert Redford play me, even though he oh, looks yeah. nothing like me. Um, but oh, yeah. and anyone would be absolutely stoked for that, for that thing, you know, to, to happen in their life. But yeah, no, no, absolutely. And you know, I, I think I, I'd be curious to ask you guys because you know, uh, especially as a, as a movie newsman, so much of your life and so much of your role has been like developing relationships and having yeah. sources and having all that sort of stuff. And like, obviously that taking time and then an exclusive coming your way, you know, now and then it, it, it feels like that might come thick and fast after many years or months of being, having like long enduring and trusting relationships to then get a scoop or something like that. Would that, would that be the, yes. would that be fair to say? Or am I? Yes. Yes. And no. Um, I mean, it's a case of, you know, Movie news as a whole is a very different thing. So you're not dealing with quite serious subject matter. You're dealing with most trivial information. So a lot of it, those relationships are, they're more for things like confirmations of stuff or, you know, you occasionally get some, there'll be some random stuff. I got a couple, you know, this year, which is just from old friends or old sources who are like, hey, I've got this thing, we'll send it through. And you're like, oh, great. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's, that's nice you. to have. But it's not a really, it's never really a thing like that. But on occasion, you do get the odd, in, uh, moment or situations usually every couple of years where something serious happens like something very serious where you publish something and there's a real threat of like a legal issue um where there is whole livelihoods at stake or where there is similar that it's not because of anything you've done wrong it's because of the way things going and you've had you get the american lawyers calling at 2 a.m <laughs> different things and saying you know you've got to do this and you got to do this and they're like oh you know they had, i had one time one of the very first times I um, tried to get a, a contract for, we do a website, we do advertising, like most, any sort of media outlet, a lot of it, uh, revenue comes through advertising. One of my first contracts for that, they tried to uh, go the hard thing on an agreement that they tried to change at the last minute and we had nothing signed. And so they said, oh, you orally agreed to this. And they said, oh, okay. And we said, no. And then, so they got their lawyer to call at 3 a.m., at my home, and I'm like, you know, I'm 19, 20 at this point. Uh, I've never dealt with American lawyers, so my dad picks up the phone for me, takes it, and here's the thing, and he says, call back at like a, a decent hour, bye. Hangs up the phone. <laughs> and it's like, for the next few hours, none of us slept, and then the next, that, you know, by that eight o'clock that morning, the president of the company rings up to apologize. <laughs> and so you have, you know, there are incidents like this that happen on occasion and yeah, it's, it can be, it's scary as fuck at times. Um, when, it, when the stuff that you're doing, especially news reporting, cause so much of it, you're just going through the churn. A lot of it can be very trivial and a lot of it can be boring. And, some stuff well, that and that's exactly that exciting. That's exactly yeah. these two guys they got. That's why I wanted to ask you. I think yeah. you can add insight is, at the beginning of this, these guys are both beat Metro reporters. And when you're a city reporter, you know, sometimes it's, you know, you get a kitchen shut down because of the health inspector. And, and some of it's just, you know, the trivialities of day-to-day city experience and council meetings and, uh, you know, elections yeah. and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and in any kind of reporting field, there are going to be those small days. And then there's like, oh, the Sony email hack happens, uh, you know, as an example, is <laughs> something that just immediately pops to my mind. And it's like, oh, like, you know, um, Channing Tatum is the best emailer in the world on the one hand. And, 
and, and there's a, and there's a whole other, bunch of other things that, you know, other people can read from past stories as well. But yeah, no, I, 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 fi- I figured that, you know, a lot of it is that churn. A lot of it's great stories. They're just, you know, well, the, the, so much, well, so much of it is churn and a lot of it is, you know, it's just, you can almost do it. It's like muscle memory. You can do it all automatically. It's not yeah. that exciting. And every now and, you know, quite often you'll get days or stories where it's like, this is great fun. This is like, yeah. <laughs> there's something happening. This is serious news breaking and you're a part of it and you're in this, you're in this big identity and everyone's getting excited and the whole, and social media has enhanced this with um, reaction and everyone's commenting in real time and lots of stuff. And that stuff, that stuff can be a blast. Um, and that's kind of the things where you, you actually really enjoy. This is why you get to do this stuff. This is why you want to do this stuff. It's, it's so much fun. But then, yeah, and it's just every now and then you'll get, other times you get stories where you are on something big and you're, you know, you're putting calls around, you're getting emails around, they're getting bounced back or they're getting, you know, cease and desist orders or you're getting stuff. I've had times where I have to call times and they, the person hung up on me. I'm like, oh, okay. And then I rang them back and said, oh, hi. And I got through the same person. Hi. Um, put, you know, I was just asking about, I was the guy who rang before, I was just asking about this inquiry, was this case? And they hung up again. And it's like, oh, I'm hitting a nerve here. <laughs> uh, so you keep going different forms of attack and that kind of stuff. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 part of the thrill of it. You know, the 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 daily churn of stuff can be boring, and it's it's the stuff that usually keeps people away from this job. Yeah. But it's worth it for the, the moments where, if you can get it happening often in this field and in this job, I've been in, I've been lucky enough it happens quite regularly. Where you just get those moments where this is all worth it, where you're just part of the excitement and everything, and you're helping getting people excited and <laughs> involved and, and actual things happening, um, and it's fun. Yeah, I, I think I think with these guys, um, this is the whole thing. This is not fun. Unfortunately for them, it's not it's definitely not fun now it may have been fun before when they hear that you know they're they're getting such great scoops that it's coming out of what sounds like an fbi briefing room and for them at that moment they're thinking that it might be fun and then what what i think um deep throat is really underscoring here is like i don't want i don't want laziness i don't want any inexactitudes i don't want this whimsy i want clinical shit because it needs to be well, that's the thing, and it's a good reminder. And uh, usually, if you're a journalist, you'll get an editor telling you this every now and then. And it happens where you kind of get so comfortable in the role and just churning out stuff and copy and that kind of stuff. You get a little cocky and confident, and something will happen where you get hit by something that's not true, or you get hit by something that was like, oh, I really stuffed up there. And you have to remind yourself that everything you say is important, everything you write could be considered, you know, liable yes. points, if not different or slanderous or something different kinds. You have to be just yeah, just remind yourself that this <laughs> is a serious job. Whatever you're doing, no matter what you're writing about, it is a serious job. And as much as people will you know, there is a certain disrespect for journalism, um, of any kind that's not of a specific, you know, if you're not trying for a Pulitzer, you're not gonna <laughs> be considered serious journalism and that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, you have to, but you have to remember that, yeah, this is, this is a real job and it's a really interesting job and it will be unlike anything you can really do elsewhere, yes. but it, there are serious consequences and you have and, to be very be prepared and, to accept the responsibilities for it. And 
right now in the whites of Redford's eyes in this minute of this movie, the dawning, oh, the, 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 the dawning the with him. Yeah. Can I say the, the shot with yeah. him when the car turns and it's just, just the eyes against the black pillar. And it's like, you know, it's that old trick of you, you see it with, they do it with uh, Angelica Houston and the Adams family, the old, you know, that kind of thirties trick. They just, they just light up the eyes and nothing else. And, Will, and, Willis, <laughs> and Willis has been doing it in, in all these deep throat scenes mm. all the time. Oh, just yeah, lighting his eyes. yeah but, but this one in particular, it is so dark except for just the whites and Redford's eyes and the whole, whole sequence. And then Holbrook does his Batman routine where he just gone. <laughs> Did he hear footsteps? He do, he does a rad Batman. He do, like literally yeah. sm- he's the greatest smoke bomber of all time. He's like he, he does that thing. He does that thing that sometimes <laughs> he does that thing you sometimes have to do to your friends when they're really drunk. You're like, oh, I'm just going to the bathroom, and you just are out of there. You just get out of that get out of that nightclub, get out of that bar. Oh man! But look, you know, um, thank you so much for for coming and chatting in, in this garage with me. Um, again, thank you for being a part of the show. Thank you for your encouragement and support. Always happy to be in a dark garage with you, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the best way to end it. All right, let's, let's get to, let's get back to the garage. Ah, Garth Franklin, one of my dearest friends. Darkhorizons.com is where you can find Garth writing like a man machine, like the T-1000 himself. Uh, he's, always there and um, really providing news with sort of the most integrity online that you could ever find um darkhorizons.com occasionally you'll see me ply my writing wares there as well guys thank you so much for listening to all the president's minutes again thank you so much for listening to everything that we're doing on one heat meter productions at the moment brand new episodes of miami nice the conclusion of our three hands gregor jordan mini series steamrolling into the final three episodes of our increment vice series as well we have got about 20-ish, 30-ish episodes of this to go. Holy dooly, thank you so much for your support. Please subscribe, rate, review the podcast. Everything helps. If you have a little bit of extra scratch, we have a great Patreon where there's a bonus episode of of a show called Rum and Rant every single week where I have a few drinks and talk about movies. Thank you so much for your support. Great episodes of this show coming up. Great guests of this show coming up. Can't wait to share them with you. Take care of yourselves. Speak soon.